0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow, a leading provider of PV inverter solutions across the world. SunGrow is also providing energy storage systems to some of the largest projects in the U.S., like the Chisholm Grid Project in Fort Worth, Texas. Chisholm Grid is a 100 megawatt standalone battery storage installation expected to start operation in the middle of this year, providing energy and grid services to the growing Texas market. Learn more about SunGrow's energy storage solutions by emailing them at info at sungrowamericas.com. The Energy Gang is brought to you by s Electric. New technologies are unlocking innovative ways to solve power-related challenges. Conventional wired approaches may still be viable, but they're not always the best solution. Today, non-wires alternatives like microgrids can provide sustainable, resilient, and economic ways to deliver reliable power. s Electric Company has provided innovative power solutions for over 100 years, and it helps utility and commercial customers find the best solutions to meet their energy needs. Learn more at snc.com slash nwa. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, welcome. After 30 years of R&D and commercial proof, hundreds of billions in institutional dollars are pouring into now-conventional tech like wind, solar, and batteries. But there's a whole new class of technologies that are ready to scale. Where will the next commercial breakthroughs come, and will the money get to them fast enough? Katherine Hamilton is my co-host. She's the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions. Hi Katherine.
1: Hi, I'm so excited for this week's episode, especially with someone who just got married.
0: And that person who just got married is our guest co-host, Neka Uzo Chibule, a senior vice president at Align Climate Capital. She is with us from, where are you, San Francisco? I am in Oakland, California. Oakland. You're in Oakland. And you just got married. How was the wedding?
2: It was amazing. Um, When people say it's the best day of your life, I totally understand. I wish I could relive the moment over and over again.
0: So NECA is the former director of energy innovation at Elemental Accelerator, which is a nonprofit climate tech investor. She's also worked at PG and E and Nextera on the corporate side in energy trading, resource planning, and customer experience. And NECA is also the founder of Green Tech Noir, a community for Black professionals who are looking to create change and grow their careers across a wide range of clean technology. And your nickname is Nekopedia. Where did you get that name?
2: Um, I have been known for uh, giving a lot of background facts, but I think it's mostly because my college sport was academic quiz bowl. So when I was at Hampton University, we went to nationals three years in a row, and I'm a proud uh, nerd.
0: I don't know academic quiz bowl. How does that
2: work exactly? So you are competing with teams in a Jeopardy-style competition, um, and it's one university against the other. Uh, across all things, uh, common knowledge, deeper knowledge, whether that's politics, sports, arts, science, math. Um, and if you buzz in and give the right answer, your team gets a point. Uh, if you buzz in and give the wrong number, I'm sorry, wrong answer, no one on your team can answer properly and it goes to the other team. So it's a mixture of knowing understanding the knowledge that you know, but also understanding the knowledge that your teammates know and being able to buzz in fast enough to get a
0: a winning point. Catherine, what do you think? Should we start a quiz bowl show with NECA? Oh, my gosh.
1: Just for comparison, my college sport was sorority ice hockey. That's what I was doing at the same time (laughs) that NECA was being smart.
2: (laughs) Ice hockey sounds very fun. There's a lot of balance uh, still team, and coordination.
1: It is indeed, and uh, it it allowed me to to do things that I don't do do anymore, just like hurt people.
0: (laughs) Well, we brought NECA on to talk (laughs) about where money is going in the next round of breakthroughs, because there are now trillions of dollars in institutional capital primed for climate-related investments. And just this week, the firm of our former co-host, Jigger Shah, Generate Capital, closed a $2 billion fund to support everything from HVAC upgrades to biogas to geothermal to community solar. And that's also what Align Climate Capital is focused on as well. Uh, Nega, what sectors are, are you all focused on? We are really
2: open. Um our firm was founded to invest in the technologies that are going to either accelerate towards a green economy or help stop climate change. So for us, that means everything from renewable energy, clean transportation, resilient um, and efficient infrastructure to sustainable land use. And all of those holds a multitudes. Absolutely. And
0: we can dig into some of those. Uh, NECA has also seen capital deployment from a few different angles inside corporations, helping startups at Elemental Accelerator, and now working with institutional investors. And as we heard on our previous show, there was also a record $17 billion in venture capital going into climate tech in 2020. So with all this money dropping into the space, where can it have the highest impact? What are the areas where we have commercial viability, but we still need to see significant breakthroughs? And a lot of those breakthroughs will come because of that institutional capital. So Nneka, are there broad sectors where you think that applies right now? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's,
2: I believe that there's a lot of money that needs to go into the pre-commercial space. There's a lot of capital intensive tech that needs support on the early end, whether that's space technology or battery chemistries. But once we find that companies have a commercial product, there's a lot of interest in them. Um, But they don't always have the support to do wide-scale deployment or understand the complexities of who their partners are and what it takes to serve them. So some of the areas that I'm really excited about are like heavy-duty, trucking, or even the ways that people are thinking about mass transportation of people, which is very different from micromobility. And what makes these areas really hard to scale are just the sheer amount of stakeholders who are involved. So we know about you know the high-speed rail project in California and all the pieces that went... <laughs> towards it and it still didn't get off the ground, right? So now imagine a private company trying to think about trains or mass transportation. On the other side, when we look at the way that the United States was designed in the westward expansion, it's, you know, the world of the car and we talk about Route Sixty Six and there are a number of small towns that We're built up around gas stations and rest stops. But if we're changing the way that trucking is happening, we need to make sure that some of those petrol stations are being changed to EV charging stations and understanding how we do fleet electrification at scale. So it's really cool to watch um, some of these EV companies get funding, um, seeing some of these fleet electrification companies get a lot of attention. But at the end of the day, where we need a lot of support is how do we connect all of those? What's the sauce that brings people together? And who is the underlying layer that makes this transition more seamless?
1: Yeah, so I talked to Marissa Sweeney, who is with Generate Capital. And as you said, they just raised 2 billion. And it was from pension funds in Australia, Sweden, and the UK. And it's and she's a huge fan of NECA, by the way. Um, And what they see themselves as not completely different from, from what NECA just described with the line ca- climate capital is, you know, there's this bridge to bankability that you need and you need someone to do kind of the hard work. You have the technology and you have the customers and the market, but you still need that bridge before the big banks will really invest. And so trying to figure out what are those technologies? And she said, you have to look forwards and backwards. And you have to look backwards because you got to like look and see what's coming down the hill at you. Like what what's going to be happening that's coming your way? And then you also have to be able to look forward to say, all right, as as it's coming your way and you're trying to figure out how to invest, what can go sideways and what can go right? And how do you kind of guide that? And so I see, NECA, what you do and what folks at Generate do is really the hard work of you know, getting projects to scale, and and that can be in a lot of, as you say, a lot of different sectors. Some of them in sectors as disaggregated as buildings or heat pumps, and then some that are sort of the the bigger um, sectors where you're trying to figure out, you know, how do you solve for kind of those big problems?
0: Yeah, so let's walk through a few of them. You mentioned trucking right off the bat, NECA. Do you think that the breakthroughs need to come in the actual build out of the drivetrain and the models of trucks? Or is it the infrastructure surrounding um, heavy duty trucking, electrified heavy duty trucking that needs to happen? Obviously, it's a combination of both. But when it comes to considering where the dollars should be spent, do you have uh, any thoughts on where the highest impact would be? Sure. I'm a person who's
2: driven towards action. I have a strong bias towards action. And I think that the drivetrains can always get better. The technology can always get better. But climate has changed. Uh, we're seeing these massive wildfires, terrible floods, all these things that are happening. And we honestly don't have the luxury of waiting until every single manufacturer is in you know, 100% peak perfect uh, shape. So we're looking at people who are thinking about modular deployments, thinking about technology that can be um, dropped into current manufacturing processes or is a really easy swap out for current drivetrain engine setups, etc. So that way when you're thinking about it as a modular application or thinking about it as a OEM partnership, it's no longer about building a whole new trucking company. It's about creating services to help existing infrastructure thrive and survive for this next stage of, you know, world that we're living in. Uh, One of the things that Align Climate Capital really prides itself on is supporting developers and service-based companies, because there are a good number of people thinking about hardware, and there are a good number of people who are thinking about the solution on a macro scale. But there isn't as much support for service providers, people who are you know, doing the work to make sure that there's the seamless transition who are connecting between manufacturers and customers and also helping um, for a just transition as well as a smoother transition. Uh, Because I'm of the mindset that we can't just drop all that we are working on right now and start all over from scratch. There has to be a way that we can build on top of uh, current systems.
1: I'm thinking about technologies that, I see as needing to scale a lot more rapidly, like community solar and microgrids, because of part of those services that they provide to communities, whether it's resilience, um, low carbon, um, resources. How do you view those in the context of the way you think about investment?
2: So Align Climate Capital is actually an investor in Summit Ridge Energy. Uh, And really early on, we saw the need for community solar. So that's something we're really invested in because I don't believe and we don't believe that clean tech is only for the people with a lot of disposable income. It's for all of us. And community solar gives and microgrids and all of those things give opportunities for people to partake and share. And we're talking about a real sharing economy, not necessarily a gig economy. So for us, we're thinking about who are the people who benefit from all of these technological breakthroughs. Um, right now, we're also living in a place where Amazon is one of the biggest suppliers of goods to people's homes. So when you're electrifying some of those fleets, you're also helping to drive down the you know life cycle emissions of the average person, when you're getting, you know, your Amazon Prime box or whatever FedEx delivery that you're working on. I think there's this other piece around community in terms of who is feeling the negative effects of the current systems that we have. And the folks that are feeling the negative effects most immediately of some of the emissions are people who live in fence line and frontline communities. That means that they're along highways or along manufacturing plants. So the sooner that we get to cleaner emitting vehicles or cleaner generation through microgrids or other features, it means that there's going to be less asthma. It means that there's going to be cleaner water. It's going to mean a higher quality of life for everyday individuals. And this is not just thinking about clean tech or climate tech from a Tesla driver's perspective. It's thinking about clean tech and climate tech in a human dignity perspective.
0: The mention of community solar and microgrids are interesting to me because these are two areas that potentially could see explosive growth, but they're limited by policy, like state legislatures often have to adopt community solar programs, and then it's up to a utility to implement. And there are questions about whether a third party is procuring the solar, whether a utility is selling the shares. There have historically been complicated complications around how you set up that those share programs, how much of those shares go to low-income communities, for example. On the microgrid space, I mean, the microgrid controls are phenomenal. All the energy generation assets are ready to scale. And everything from renewables to combined heat and power to the underlying controls are there and ready. But you have utility franchise rights that are a problem. You um, often have misaligned incentives about who operates those microgrids, where they can be developed. So I wonder, what is your thought on If if there's so much money pouring into this space, and we have two sectors that we just mentioned that are ready to scale, what are the limitations for scale if you have some of these structural barriers, but a lot of institutional capital waiting on the sidelines? Where do you see that friction? And how do you alleviate that friction?
2: And you touched on so many good points. I'm a firm believer that for a lot of the things that we're struggling with, the solution exists together. But at the end of the day, we are still human we still have egos, you know, we still have misaligned incentives. And there is a space for some sort of arbiter. Um, There's a space for government to step in. Uh, But at the same time, it requires government to be highly versed um, in the complexities of all of these technologies, and the complexities of climate change. And I've seen some You know, nonprofits like uh, or think tanks like RMI step in um, some lobbying organizations, which some, depending on your politics, can have a positive or a negative effect. But it, it really is incumbent upon the those who have a mission aligned vision to step up and help out where people might have misaligned incentives. And also for individuals when it comes to voting to understand like who are the people who actually make decisions around um, these technologies. Like In a lot of these um, midterm elections, you're voting on things like tax assessors and no one really cares or understand what that means. But also that could be the difference between whether the policies that you're talking around Uh, microgrids or resilient communities or extreme weather management um, are funded or even um, rolled out in a meaningful way. Uh, We have talked a lot about public-private partnerships um, for a long time, especially when it comes to things like large transportation systems um, like the BARTs and the uh, MARTAs and the metros of the world, but also with like bikes, bike sharing, right? So we know that it's possible to get folks in the same room to get together, but it's a question about like who's prioritizing it, who's setting the agenda um, and whose ego is going to get in the way of helping that happen. But more than anything, I think the general public has a voice here at times it feels like we are, powerless when it comes to the global politics or society happening in the world but it's also these small things about who we donate to who we vote for that also allow us to have some power in these decisions
1: this is so so interesting to hear this because uh, when you were when you were talking about kind of these these places where you really need an arbiter i've been working a lot on the accelerator which is kind of the the federal entity that would be the like a big green bank that would help kind of Fill that gap and and get money not just to the state green banks that can also kind of serve that purpose and then you know they get it ready or blend finance to make sure it pencils out with folks like you who are actually deploying projects and I feel like that's the kind of policy that from a federal perspective would be really helpful to have and and would really get some of these these projects that are really impacting communities and forty percent is supposed to be carved out. For disadvantaged communities, uh, to really get them over over the bankability line, or get them even to project finance, where you all can step in.
2: Totally, and sometimes just that little nudge at the beginning um, helps them get over that hurdle of the inflection point of being able to compete with the market price or commodity prices, and then from there, like let the markets take take control, and you know, at the end of the day. Um, all of us have been talking about like all companies are going to become climate tech companies. Right now, in many cases, clean tech is way, way more affordable than, you know, dirty tech solutions if you're, you know, starting from scratch. But also, you know, all of the surrounding systems are becoming more and more integrated, whether that's, you know, smart meters and other distributed generation that it only makes sense if you have some starting capital to integrate with all of these systems now. No one's going to build a new coal plant, so no one's going to build a new coal furnace, right? So when you're building new homes, then all of those homes are going to be net zero, especially here in California, where I'm sitting from. I know it's different in other states.
0: When we were talking about this topic, I threw some notes together about tech areas that I think are on the cusp of massive scale, but that still have, you know, some some mostly market barriers, some tech barriers as well. So the list that I have here are heat pumps and generalized uh, changes in heating and cooling. There's obviously a major contractor and manufacturer problem where there's misaligned incentives over how you actually sell heat pump models. Microgrids, which we touched on, the tech is absolutely there, but there's generally a conflict with utilities over how to build these systems. Geothermal is an interesting one. There's a company that has gotten a lot of press lately, Fervo Energy, which I think was supported by Elemental Accelerator. Is that right,
2: Nika? Yes. Yeah. I, I worked with the team at Fervo. And did.
0: they're doing um, like low temperature rank and cycle geothermal using new drilling practices from the fracking industry to try to access previously unaccessible geothermal resources. So that's generally a a tech problem but once you can access those resources you can have 24 7 low carbon energy and you can create pps or ppas around that um, fairly easily i was thinking about electric aviation which seems to have a tech problem you just need better batteries and you have to start with limited applications like um you know short-haul flights um, electric vehicles you touched on which is largely an infrastructure problem um, The drivetrains are a lot better. Um, Electric cars are, you know, the models are plentiful and consumers have access to them. But there's definitely an infrastructure problem and a sales problem. Uh, And then I thought about building automation as well. The tech is absolutely there, but we have a misalignment in the way that people who manage buildings are actually integrating new tech in extremely long integration cycles. So those are the few that seem ready to scale in a pretty massive way, but all have barriers for a variety of reasons. Nika, any thoughts on those or, or other areas that you're interested in that may face similar challenges?
2: All of those are amazing. And just to touch on the electric aviation, I've been so impressed. By how quickly some of these aviation companies have been able to scale. At Elemental, we worked with Ampere and Zero Avia. Um, and Ampere is a electric airplanes, and Zero Avia is hydrogen airplanes. And just to see the level of interest um, that's going into the space that's like, if you want to talk about capital intensive, super capital intensive, tons of regulations, but people are, are understanding like there has to be a better way. Um, And with the right investment, um, this can be phenomenal. And this is also one of those places where I'm like, there's no excuse. Uh, The airlines have been complaining about their low margins for years, and they're leaning into this because they're acknowledging that they're going to be on the hook for their emissions. Um, The customers are desiring a cleaner way of transportation. I mean, I think uh, people were surprised that Greta Thunberg sailed across the Atlantic uh, and she talked about having the capacity to, but there are a lot of people who have been reducing their flying because they're feeling uncomfortable with the amount of emissions um, that they're releasing as part of that process. So that's really interesting. Another place that I'm particularly interested in scaling is this indoor agricultural space. People have been growing indoors for years and years and years and years this is not a new thing, but it's also so interesting to see a lot more capital get into the space of growing things that are not just you know, greens and microgreens um, in a greenhouse and like changing the way that we're utilizing water as we're doing agricultural development
0: and also thinking about space. Catherine, any thoughts on particular tech sectors you think are on the cusp of expanding?
1: Yeah, you had sent us these notes. So I texted with a, a friend of mine who's an investor and I asked him that question. and he and I went back and forth for hours last night just throwing different technologies at each other. And one of the, one of those was electric aviation I work with by aerospace, which yeah, I think it's a super interesting space. There are a lot of different places, but one of the things that I've had a lot more experience with is on the grid. So, you know, 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, I was working on smart grid and all of these different, technologies that kind of form the connective tissue along the grid to make everything work better and to allow customers to really be much more involved and to bring their resources into the grid. I just feel like all this stuff can work and it's worked for a really long time. I wrote an IEEE paper about demand response like 15 years ago. <laughs> I mean, this stuff is not necessarily rocket science, but man, I would love to see it much more embedded in In everything we do on the deployment side um, on the regulatory front I mean that's where a lot of the hang-up is on the regulatory front and just in the way that we model and we build in electric rates and pricing it seems like we need to have done this already
0: I've used this term institutional capital a number of times here Nika what are we talking about when we refer To institutional investors? What are the range of investors who are now putting the billions of dollars into this space?
2: When we're talking about institutional investors, we're seeing some investors that have historically been looked at as being more sophisticated, whose clients are really thinking about conserving wealth and growing at a steady pace rather than some of our typical venture capital investors who are okay with kind of the frenetic pace of tech innovation. So you're seeing a lot more pension funds, endowments, um uh, corporate governments, etc. investing in clean tech. And it's interesting because after clean tech 1.0 when there was a lot of um volatility in the market, you would hear people say no, we don't invest in clean tech or climate tech anymore. Um but now they feel like they have to. I mean, you're seeing monumental growth, on, especially in the EV space. Um, solar has become a commodity. Everything is becoming normalized, uh, that you're seeing some of the OGs coming into the space, which is really exciting. Uh, additionally, there were a number of corporate CVCs that were opening up their own shops, which some still are, but others more so are coming into funds like ours and saying, Hey, we trust you, you have the expertise. Can you deploy this capital in, you know, areas that will help support the growth of this industry? So you even saw Amazon open up their own climate pledge and, you know, Toyota Ventures and all these really interesting people who have a vested interest in everyone becoming a little bit more green. So for me that's exciting because the money in climate tech is huge. Now There's also sometimes potentially opportunity where there's more money than opportunities. Um, More recently, there have been a couple billion dollar funds that have been announced. Um, At the same time, we have so many startups that are a little bit more nascent in their adventure. So they might need, you know, two and three million dollar checks, and they're not quite ready for the 10 million and 50 million dollar checks. But it's also really exciting that when they get to that level, there's going to be someone waiting, you know, with the opportunity for them to help them scale their business and growth equity. So revisiting
0: the premise of the conversation, which is we've had decades of R&D spending and then commercial investments in wind, solar, batteries, EVs, inverters, smart meters, and we're in this new era of clean energy deployment. We've got all these other areas that we talked about that have their different Challenges, but scaling opportunities. Nika, do you think we're on the cusp of a of a new era where a, a whole new crop of technologies are going to gain commercial traction all at once in a big way?
2: I think so. Uh, we talked about capital entering the market, and right now, capital is the typical you know rocket ship that you'd put on the back of a company. Um, but like some rockets, some of them burn bright, and other ones go far. So I think it's a mixture of not just capital, but uh, wise counsel. Um, There are a lot of people who've been doing this for a long time. And I don't think it should be so much like old tech versus new tech. But, you know, how do we collaborate together and bring people who've been like, you know, doing something for 20 years, whether that's like working on. A gas pipeline, and say, "Hey, how do I look at undergrounding of utilities in a more meaningful way as a new technology opportunity?" Or someone who's been farming, you know, soybeans for three generations, and say, "How do we think about land use and water use, and ensuring that you know the new school is talking to the old school?" We are also in an age of mass information sharing, whether that's through. TikTok or Instagram, and the way that people are getting information is very different from just five years ago. So the level of awareness that the average human has about climate change or new companies is also really big. Uh, I think the Jobs Act did a great thing when it opened up the doors to crowd raising and crowdfunding. So you also have a lot of people who are becoming micro investors in their own way, putting $2,000 or $200 towards, you know, the solution of their choice. And it'll be really interesting to see how companies that are funded by the general public, whether it's on Greenraise or Republic, uh, will operate in comparison to those who had, like, a a friends and family round, if you call it, or some other sort of um, seed funding.
0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. This year, SunGrow is also supplying more than 1.5 gigawatt hours of energy storage technology to projects across North America. Among these projects is the Chisholm Grid Battery Energy Storage Project in Fort Worth, Texas, which is owned by Astral Electricity and was developed by Able Grid and MAP. Along with the lithium-ion batteries, Chisholm Grid will use SunGro's advanced converters and controls and a long-term services contract to meet the growing ERCOT market conditions while reducing operating costs and extending the lifespan of the assets. And SunGrow isn't just supporting energy providers and Fortune 500 companies with their deep decarbonization goals. It's also making those commitments for itself. In the last year, SunGrow joined RE100 with a commitment to switch its power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. To learn more, email info at we're also brought to you by SNC Electric. Power-related challenges and opportunities are becoming more complex. Reliability concerns, rising energy costs, cybersecurity risks, they can all jeopardize operations. While new technologies like electric vehicles and microgrids offer great potential. If you're a utility or commercial enterprise today, you're faced with a critical decision: select a conventional wired approach or respond in a non-conventional way. Even with dedicated in-house resources, arriving at a conclusion can be an uncertain and time-consuming process. You can evaluate these big decisions more efficiently and with more confidence by working with an experienced integrator like SNC Electric Company. SNC will be with you every step of the way, thoroughly working through your challenges and reviewing your energy needs to offer an expanded set of solutions developed specifically for you. Learn more at snc.com/nwa. The clean energy industry is primarily white we it is white very white throughout every sector the best stats we have are in the solar industry where the solar census tracks employment on a very detailed basis and in the solar industry 73% of the workforce is white 17% is hispanic or latino and 8% is black and the country is 60% white and 13% black the numbers are far lower across the economy. According to the Brookings Institute, 4% of US business owners are black, and 1% of black business owners get loans in their first year versus 7% for whites. Uh, This is the case in the venture world as well. Black startup founders only got 1.2% of venture dollars in 2020 for a more detailed look at how that's playing out in the venture space. we, We talked about that in our last episode. So what are the ways to affect career pathways for black professionals that can help shift these numbers? In January, NECA launched an organization called Green Tech Noir. It is helping Black professionals grow their career connections across clean energy, smart cities, transportation, infrastructure, environmental justice, basically all the areas that we've been talking about in the first half of the show. And there are a lot of career networking organizations in clean energy. But this is the first, um, as far as I can tell, for professionals of color. So NECA, what is the goal of Green Tech Noir? What, What need are you trying to fill here? Thanks for
2: that. I am trying to elevate uh, black professionals in this space. Um, There are not very many of us, but we still matter and we still care. I've been to several of these energy conferences and I look around and there's not a lot of people who look like me. And when I do see someone that I know that looks like me, I, I tend to know them. So I said, hey, you know, let's make a safe space for all of us to get together. Um, one, to share our stories, to network, and it, it turned out that it wasn't just a few of us, that there were a couple hundred of us all seeking this sort of community. And when it comes to community, it's you know a space where you can talk about the challenges that you're going through, talk about your successes and big wins, um, talk about the ways that you're thinking about growing a business you know, support with connections and things like that. Furthermore, I think it's an has been an amazing place for people to elevate um, new founders as well as investors. Share deal flow. Um, talk about some of those unwritten rules of business that are shared, maybe in other communities that haven't always been shared with us in the Black community. So, you know, each one, teach one. I've taken every opportunity that I can when I hear about a posting or opportunity or funding and grant that I share with Green Tech Noir in our community. And then also just to celebrate successes. Um, In the last few months, or I'll say the last year, when a lot of the story of Black people in the globe are told, a lot of it is told with trauma. And it's really also about success. Green Tech Noir, is global. We have people in Africa and Latin America who are working on these uh, resilience issues. And it's been so fun to hear about someone raising a ton of money or also hitting a customer goal. Um, and it's a space for joy. Additionally, there have been people who've reached out to me to say, like, hey, I've been looking for a more diverse board, or we are looking for more employees and we haven't done a good job of broadly connecting with different networks. So Green Tech Noir has been an easier way for them to reach out and say, let's talk to you know someone who's a product manager, or we need to talk to some more engineers, et cetera, some more finance people, and we can help to make some of those connections as well. Um, we're all about really growth of clean tech and climate tech, and the best way for this industry to grow is if it grows uh, organically and it grows in a diverse way. What we know about biodiversity is that in order for an ecosystem to be healthy, you have to have a little bit of every piece of the pie. And right now, if you, as you talked about this climate tech industry is, is very white. However, we're designing solutions for everyone. And you can't design a really good solution for everyone if you don't have everyone's voice at the table. So more voices at the table, more powerful voices, and more strong and confident voices is what we're working on.
0: You've cited this example of Louis Latimer, a black inventor who helped patent the telephone. He also helped patent the, the, fil- the filament and the lamp to support Edison's light bulb, basically making that light bulb a commercial success. What inspiration do you get from, from that story? Why cite his story?
2: I love his story because it's showing that, you know, even in the background, we're here. Uh, The public image of a person who is interested in saving the planet through clean tech is one of like a crunchy granola. It's it's a very outdated stereotype of, you know, a plant based person wearing Birkenstocks and hiking and you know strapping themselves to a tree. Um, And that is not just a a weak trope, but it's also not accurate. You know, Louis Latimer was there, you know, more than 100 years ago, thinking about how do we improve our power systems. Um, Historically, African Americans have also been on the leading edge of design just because the United States was built on the backs of Black labor, and if you're doing most of the labor, you're seeing firsthand what innovation has to be done. And they did it, whether that's the ironing board or the traffic light or the home security system. So it's not a secret that black people have been an engine powering the country. And I just want more people to know that story. It's not that we're new to being green. We're not new to sustainability. We've always been here and the way that history has been told, has eliminated our voices and our faces. And this was just an opportunity to elevate one of the history makers.
1: Yeah, I would note that energy efficiency is another space where you really see much lower uh, of the workforce, 8% of the workforce being black compared to 12% of the national workforce average. There was a really good piece by Paula Glover, who's the president of the Alliance to save energy. It was in Canary Media. She was, she's been in this electric, in the energy industry for 25 years and she was the president and CEO of American association of blacks in energy. And she really said, look, we, we have a diversity problem. Um, Part of it is that you know the unemployment rate for Black Americans is close to double what it is for White Americans, and Black-owned businesses shut down at twice the rate of White-owned businesses during COVID. Um, And energy efficiency, you know, these are these are good jobs um, that really reduce energy burden, which Black households face uh, forty-three percent higher than White households. But the issue in a lot of situations is that. Um, often Americans of color haven't been able to attain the skills they need to participate. There just hasn't been that kind of networking venue, the structured training venue. Um, and what NECA is doing is incredible in that respect. Um, and then just being able to afford to, to take time to do those, um, do those trainings and actually, um, have internships that would train you to even be eligible for wages or stipends in these fields. So one of the things that Paula recommends in this job development is a bill that, um, was introduced by Bobby Rush, who is the chair of the Energy Subcommittee of Energy and Commerce in the House of Representatives, and it's called the Blue Collar to Green Collar Jobs Development Act. And what it would do is it would provide grants to businesses, labor groups, nonprofits, um, or conservation corps to pay wages or stipends for individuals getting training. And that would really focus on you know, historically black colleges and universities and other places where you could really raise folks up in into jobs where you would not even be able to afford to get the training that you need to become part of the network so um this is so important to actually be paying for that um I used to uh, ding my husband back in the day when he was at a environmental group. I said the only people who can afford to work for the enviros are uh, people with trust funds because they don't pay enough to actually have a living wage. That's so probably overstating it a little bit. But, you know, I was, uh, you know, the point was I had to have a job that paid money. And I think a lot of people have to have jobs that pay money rather than take internships. And I think we need to be super intentional about the way we do it.
2: Totally. When I worked at PG&E, um, one of my first roles there was uh, leading resource planning uh, at the San Francisco Gas Division. So I spent lots and lots of time with people who were welders and um, other utility professionals. And getting into the trade is actually more competitive than you would think for certain trades, whether that's also you know, the timing of training um, and the application process can be complicated to outsiders. Um, And you would see that a lot of people who are thriving in the space actually had family members who had done it before, uh, whether their father was alignment or their uncle was alignment and told them that this is a really good career for you to do. And uh, as a result, you have like these little dynasties of families who've been doing this for a very long time, and they're very proud of that work. But if you're a complete outsider who had no insight to know that a lineman is a job that can pay you six figures and that there's even really cool lineman jobs where you're, like, hopping out of a helicopter to fix hot wires, um, then, you know, people don't switch to those jobs or even know that the training even exists or that you can get paid to go to school.
0: There has been over the last couple of years, an explosion and companies getting serious about diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're issuing press releases about it. They're talking about creating programs to make sure they have more diverse hiring practices. Does, do you feel like this is actually improving hiring practices? Do you see any material change in the uh, ability for Black professionals to advance? And we'll take the energy ex- ex- industry as an example.
2: So I stated earlier, I'm a person that has a bias towards action. And as much as I love pledges, I love outcomes more. So the first things first is, you know, you can't improve what you don't measure. So for some of the companies that have made these pledges, they haven't even had like really good numbers or metrics that they've shared publicly, let alone to say this is, you know, what we're doing differently. Um, And they also say the path to hell is paved on good intentions. So I think. Everyone who makes a pledge has really good intentions, but there are lots of reasons why they might not have the workforce that they're desiring. One, whether that's actually putting postings or hiring opportunities in a place that it's actually capable of people seeing before an internal candidate or a high-priority candidate has even been identified. Whether that's opening up job postings For folks with non-traditional backgrounds. So I am a proud HBCU graduate, but I also went to Kellogg um, for my MBA. So I've seen, you know, both sides of the coin where, you know, someone might say that, oh, my undergraduate was not a target school. Um, but when they see my Kellogg MBA, they say, Oh yeah, yeah, that's great, but I'm still the same person. So what does it mean to hire from more diverse backgrounds people who are Graduating from associate with associates degrees, which we're going to see a boom of, since community college has been made free or very inexpensive in several states, um, can we ensure that folks that are graduating from community colleges are deemed as qualified, um, not necessarily without you know experience, but also saying like the associate's degree has meaning. Um, if we're thinking about onboarding and. Uh, quality of experience at the company? Are you hiring, you know, Black people or Latin American or Native American people into a racist work environment? Um, Have you said that you want to hire new people but haven't done anything with your culture to make it welcoming to You know, people from different backgrounds. When you check for culture fit when you're doing interviews, what does that mean? If a person has never gone snowboarding in Snowmass, Colorado, does that mean that they're not a culture fit for your company? Furthermore, once people enter into your business, you know, are there opportunities for them to grow and expand with your business? Or have you made um, opportunities for growth only possible for a small, narrow band of your employees? And the interesting thing about, you know, all of these questions companies have to ask themselves is that when you make it better for the most marginalized groups, whether that's black or disabled or queer or transgendered, you're also making the workplace better for every single person. So if you're making a workplace that's more inclusive of people from different backgrounds, it also means that people from under-resourced areas like Appalachia will also have a better chance to compete in the job market. If you're thinking about, you know, making your workplace inclusive for someone who's, you know, in a wheelchair disabled, it also means you're making the workplace simpler to work for with someone with a heart condition or a non-visible disability or someone who has a bad back. So, there are many ways that our system has failed people. And there's many ways that it doesn't work right now. There are also many ways that it can get better. And it's not just a one size fits all it requires deep introspection from the corporate leaders and not just the HR team or external consultant that's hired, but creating opportunity to create the best work experience for your company. Because you want your employees to be productive, you want them to trust the management, and you want them to help you become you know, the best place in town so you can a- attract other high quality talent. This is not charity. This is a clear business advantage and a strong value proposition for a team.
1: Well, I could not agree with you more. Inclusion just makes everything better. I I see it from a different angle uh, with my personal family life. And yes, inclusivity just makes for a a better world generally.
0: So how can employers or Black professionals get involved with Green Tech Noir?
2: So for a while we had it as a closed community, but I'm excited that we are opening it up more. Um, We're getting some resources to scale. Um, So if they go on Green Tech Noir, and ask to join, uh, their information will be put into our database and we'll send them some more information. We're also starting to do a lot more events. Right now, we have some amazing founders with amazing solutions that we want to highlight. Uh, We'd love to have some more fireside chats. So we've been mostly keeping it in the family, but uh, we might open the doors for a little bit more inclusivity on our part as well.
0: Excited to see the expansion. Well. Let's finish up with some free electrons. Uh, Catherine, what's your free electron this week? What is keeping you occupied, interested, consumed?
1: Oh, I've been watching those billionaires or whatever they are, gazillionaires, fly up to space. Um, and just thinking a little bit about space and what can we learn? And gosh, uh, you know, is there some way we can we can turn that to something that will help all of us down here? Um, and there were a couple of things that, that came to mind. One was a National Geographic book that I read with one of my kids about Mars. And it says, Um, in order for us to make Mars habitable, because like, okay, that's the goal. Let's go to Mars. So you start with a series of missions to set up living quarters. Year 100, human built factories could spew powerful greenhouse gases to boost Mars atmosphere and the greenhouse gas buildup would begin to warm the frozen planet. (laughs) And it goes through like, all right. And then once you have all of the greenhouse gases, then you would have to decarbonize. And it was like, oh my gosh, they want to recreate exactly what we've done here. This is amazing. (laughs) And insane. Um, and I couldn't believe National Geographic did that. And then I was talking to my husband because back in the... Um I guess it was the mid-1990s, there were a couple of entrepreneurs that decided that space billboards were a good idea. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to send a bunch of sort of Mylar, you know, big, huge billboards that would be orbiting the Earth. Um, So you'd be sitting outside looking at the stars and like Coca-Cola would go across the sky. (laughs) Um, And my husband was working on the anti-space billboard campaign with uh, who was then Representative Ed Mark and they managed to shut it all down. But just thinking about like, what can we do with space? What can we do that's productive and helpful to us here? And I don't think it's either advertising or recreating what we've done to this planet.
0: Nika, what's your free electron?
2: So my free electron uh, today is thinking about uh, national parks and nature. Uh, This pandemic has really pushed many of us outside uh, when we normally hadn't, always gone outside or have visited less frequently. And I think it's so special that we have land that's set aside for just conservation. And just getting connected, putting your fingers in the soil just does something to me in terms of grounding me to the earth. However, I'm aware that all of these are not accessible to everyone. So I've been thinking a lot about like, what does it mean to create a mini national park at home? I know that there's like Japanese Zen gardens where people make like really cool rock formations. But like, how would you create the idea of a a personal national park, your own, you know, (laughs) a nation of your own? Um, And how do you create that soothing ambiance at home, whether that's like, little patch of grass or like a fake putting green and adding little green trees to it um, and that's what I've been thinking about I recently moved to Oakland and thinking about making my house a home and filling it with green things is very important to me
1: Oh, I love that yeah
0: <laughs> I am gonna end with a stat I uh, I saw solar power Europe released its global market outlook for solar and they found that one out of every three power plants in 2020 was solar. And we're now seeing power purchase agreements at one cent per kilowatt hour. And that of course was during the height of the pandemic when we saw supply chains get all mixed up and prices for equipment went up, in fact, you know prices are are still going up and there are major problems but yet one out of every 3 power plants in 2020 was solar so we are just at this explosion of commercial activity feeding back into the premise of this show but obviously generation and capacity are very different so it increased power generation from solar by a half a percentage point so solar is definitely at the point of no return in terms of deployment but we obviously have to build insanely high levels of renewables to dig ourselves out of the carbon hole, which makes all these other technology areas we've been talking about that much more important. NECA, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun.
2: I think it was a great conversation, and I love all the facts you dropped on me.
0: (laughs) And if I'm ever in like a quiz bowl, or if I'm on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, I know that I will call up a quiz bowl champion nneka Hey.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And all I'll be able to do is cross-check.
2: <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Everyone loves a good fact.
0: <laughs> Neka Uzo-Chibule is a senior vice president at Align Climate Capital. She joined us from Oakland. Catherine, always fun.
1: Absolutely. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you, Neka.
0: Catherine Hamilton is the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions, and she's my regular co-host. Thanks all for being here. We appreciate it. Hit us all up on social media if you want to comment on the show and share it around. Send a link to your colleagues and your friends if you think they're going to be interested in the show, and we will catch you next week. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon.